The 2023 Curry Cup final between Free State and the Pumas calls to mind Curry Cup finals of bygone days. In 1990, a resurgent Natal entered Fortress Loftus for the final, having been twice badly beaten by a powerful Northern Transvaal side in the round-robin phase of the competition. As a final, it had everything. A death, a freak injury and an unusual and not universally popular refereeing decision by referee for the day, Freak Berger. That wasn't all. The final also had an unexpected late second-half twist. And a twist it quite literally was. Welcome to The Luke Alfred Show. I have 30 years of experience on the front lines of sports journalism, covering some of the biggest games in cricket, rugby, the FIFA World Cup, and even the Olympic Games. Come and join me as we learn about some of the greatest sports stories you've never heard. I'm Luke Alfred, and welcome to the show. Early on in the winter of 1976, Freak Berger's knee was badly crocked by a young Boerland could see a late tackle in a club rugby game between police and Marty's down in the Western Cape. The injury wasn't crippling, but it was bad enough to suggest that the fly half needed to take stock. Berger thought hard, but not too hard, and after a good think, he hobbled rather than walked away from the game he loved. With his boots hung up, what on earth was he going to do? Refereeing seemed to be the logical next step, although it was more like the logical next shuffle, given the status of his knee. Berger had the idea that he might be more than capable with a whistle around his neck. He might like giving a blow a go. Having joined the Western Province Referees Association, he started refereeing on Saturday mornings at schools in and around Cape Town. He refereed Corsais rugby at the University of Stellenbosch, something he enjoyed. He quickly developed a reputation as someone who had no difficulty in distinguishing between gamesmanship and foul play. He realized he was progressing through the ranks when he was chosen to officiate in the 1977 Craven Week in Oatswern. The competition that year was won by Eastern Province, who beat Western Province 1917 in the final. Berger wasn't awarded the final. He was too young and inexperienced as a referee for that. But he does remember two great players in that Eastern Province side, Dani Ferber and Tito Kankowski. Of all the players he has had the privilege to see at close quarters, Nas Boerter, Karl Duplessis, Philippe Seller, Nick Farr-Jones, Yanni Briet, Bill Beaumont, Serge Blanco and Gavin Hastings, Berger says that Ferber was the most casually and scandalously talented. A couple of years later, He's not exactly sure when, and Berger had progressed to refereeing in the National Club Rugby Championships in Durban over the Easter weekend. In one such Easter champs was Kerber's dispatch. Quote, They had no numbers on their shirts and no names either, remembers Berger. But Donnie was their man. He was one of the best players I've ever seen. He beat players with skill. We haven't got that anymore. We've just lost it. Like an apprentice cabinet maker in the Cabinet Makers Guild, as the late 1970s progressed, Berger learned his trade. It was not without its early challenges. He warns that young and comparatively inexperienced referees have to be careful in schools matches and what he calls mommies with umbrellas. They also have to be careful of over-vociferous parents on the touchline in general. By definition, 
School sport is a place where everyone knows absolutely everything, their emotions coloured by their love of their children. It can make the job of a referee a tad tiresome. Club rugby brought its challenges too, although these often took the form of rowdy spectators spilling over the touchline. Whether history had a way of finding him, or whether he had a way of finding history, it's difficult to tell. But in 1979, at the police ground in what was then Salisbury, he refereed Rhodesia versus Northern Transvaal. It was Rhodesia's last ever Curry Cup game because it was clear by then that Rhodesia would become independent Zimbabwe. They didn't want their international rehabilitation to be compromised by association with the apartheid regime, so the Rhodesians pulled out of the Curry Cup. Rhodesia were a handy side, with Ian Robertson, David Smith and Ray Mort playing against Nas Buerta's men. It was a ding-dong affair. The lead changed hands several times. Nas, Berger says, won the game for Northern Transvaal with a 70-metre drop kick not long before he blew the final whistle. Afterwards, with appropriate pomp and ceremony, the local band played Vera Lynn's Now is the Hour, with the famous opening lines, Now is the hour when we must say goodbye. Like all apprentices, Berger needed a mentor. His was Max Bayes, famous for his failure toward Fergus Slattery a try in the fourth test at Ellis Park during the British Lions' victorious series over the Springboks in 1974. Bayes is in his early 90s nowadays. He lives in Riversdale on the edge of the Karoo. Berger doesn't say exactly what Blazer's presence did for him, but you sense it was important for Berger that someone like Bayes was simply there to field the occasional question or deal with an esoteric expression of the law. Berger doesn't attribute it particularly to Bayes, but says that one of the things he learned along the way is that a referee must always have an extra whistle in his kit bag. He must always pack that kit bag himself, and he must always see to it that that whistle works before he needs it. Whistles have been known to get clogged with soap, or shampoo, or conditioner. It is not a good idea to wet your whistle. There is so much general muck that collects in a kit bag. Having a whistle that doesn't whistle is not a good way to impose yourself upon a game of rugby when the mana are on edge and waiting for you to blow it. In 1989, after putting in the hard yards, Berger made his international debut, being chosen to referee in France's two home tests that November against Australia in Strasbourg and Lille. Berger loved Strasbourg. He calls it, quote, a lovely spot. His international debut was made all the more memorable because just beforehand Paul Dobson, who is head of the South African Referees Committee, arrived unexpectedly in Strasbourg from South Africa. Quote, out of the blue, there he was with my springbok blazer, says Berger. In those days, there were no neutral colours, so we wore springbok colours. South Africa wasn't an official member of the IRB at the time. So my blazer was just like a springbok blazer. It was a very special moment for me, and I'll be forever grateful to Paul. By that stage, Berger had developed a pre-match ritual. In stadiums he knew he liked to sit in the same place in the dressing room. On the day before the match he always had what he calls his, quote, own captain's run, 
at the stadium or ground in which he was meant to officiate. He would go to the ground, say, on the afternoon before the match, get into his tracksuit and make sure that he had his whistle. He would look at the light, feel the spring of the turf underfoot. He would referee an invisible test before thousands of invisible spectators having a soundless conversation with two non-existent captains. Some people thought he was crazy, but he begs to differ. He would only do his shadow captain's run for about 40 minutes, he says, but it made him feel more in command of himself and his nerves for the following day. The Wallabies won the first test on a football pitch in Strasbourg. You can see at least portions of the match on YouTube if you're that way inclined. You can see the dim outline of a centre circle in the middle of the pitch. Whether serendipitously or by design, the ball wallaby fly half Michael Liner kicks off with is called a wallaby. At about five minutes into the highlights clip I watched, I saw Berger for the first time facing the camera, his two Scottish touch judges alongside. He is in white shorts and a green jersey with two golden hoops on the sleeve of each upper arm. He is flexing his shoulder muscles, not smiling but expectant. He looks as though he's a little boy who's been saving his pocket money for a long time and is about to go off on his summer holidays. As he and his two touch judges turn to trot towards the centre circle, something splendid happens. One of the touch judges gently touches the small of Berger's back. The gesture might be understood as a form of condescension. I don't understand it that way at all. I see it as a gesture of support. It is saying, Good luck on your big day, Freak. We're right behind you. We're here to support you in whatever way we can. The Wallabies won the test but went on to lose in Lille. After the Strasbourg test, Berger was presented with an autographed Wallaby jersey by Far Jones. He says that one of his most memorable moments as a referee was once receiving a knock on his door after a match and opening it to find Yanni Briet standing there with two beers in his hand. Briet was the perfect gentleman, says Berger. He fails to mention that he was seldom offered beers or autographed jerseys by the skippers of losing teams, although we shouldn't be surprised that he doesn't. Six months after his two tests in France, Berger refereed the 1990 Curry Cup final between Northern Transvaal and Natal at Loftus-Fasfeld. In those days, the final of the competition was played by the first and second place teams on the log after two rounds of home and away matches, with the top team on the log having home ground advantage. In round eight of the competition, Natal hosted Northern Transvaal in Durban, the Northern Transvaalers coming away victorious by 24 points to nine. In round 16 of the competition, Northern Transvaal won 28-6. It didn't need much perspicacity to realize that come final day, Natal were on a hiding to nothing. Natal's road to the final had been nine grim years in the making. In 1981, they were relegated to the Curry Cup's B section, losing a promotion-relegation game against Eastern Transvaal in Springs. To this day, it still rankles Vainant Klaassen, the then Natal skipper. Quote, First they should have played the game in Durban, he says, and then they didn't wait. I was in New Zealand with the box and so was Javi Fasahi. He'd been flown out as a replacement. Dick Cox had to come out of retirement for that one in Springs, and we lost, and so we went down. 
Natal's newfound B-section status didn't mean the death of rugby in the province. Natal always pulled healthy home crowds, and they always did well against touring teams from outside the country. In 1984, they won the B-section, a regular occurrence, but lost their playoff game for promotion. As winners of the B-section, however, they played in the 1984 Curry Cup semi-final, where they beat Orange Free State. The final was against Western Province at Newlands. Natal found themselves 9-3 up at half-time. Clarsen thinks that the margin should have been greater. Quote, Rob Hankinson dotted down in the in-goal area in the first half, and that would have made it 15-3, but Cassie Karstens, the ref, disallowed the try. Western Province had virtually the entire Springbok pack, and they were too much for us in the second half, and we went down 19-9 in the end. The crusty men in their tweed jackets noted Natal's Curry Cup run in 84. They noted, too, Natal's apparent inability to pull themselves out of the B section, more often than not finding themselves in Valcom for the annual promotion relegation match against the Purple People Eaters of Northern Free State. It was a match that Natal almost invariably lost, thanks to the slick boot of Northern Free State's fly half, Eric Herbert. How Natal would have loved it if Herbert wore black and white instead of purple. In 1986, the Krusty men made a big decision and, by presidential decree, promoted Natal into the A section of the Curry Cup. Doc Craven always had a soft spot for the Banana Boys, so in 1987, they took their place alongside Western Province, Transvaal and the Thruit Kanona of the provincial game for the first time since 1981. Their promotion was not an immediate success, although there was halting upward progress. In 1987, they finished 6th out of 7. In 1998, they finished 5th out of 7, above Eastern Province in 6th and Orange Free State in 7th. In 1989, Natal finished the Curry Cup A section in 5th, above Southwest Africa, 6th, Northern Free State, 7th, and Eastern Province, 8th, winning 7 of their 14 games, the same number incidentally as Transvaal. They were gaining ground metre by painful metre, but it was rather like fighting for the hill they had yet to see the top of. The late Ian McIntosh was part of the progress. According to Klaassen, he'd arrived at Natal from newly independent Zimbabwe in 1982, playing a kind of director of coaching role at the Union, although that wouldn't have been his official title. Mac was no stranger to hard graft. He was a regular visitor to the local schools. He used to go to out-of-the-way places like Kokstadt and Freyheit to speak to club players and coaches up there. Klaassen says McIntosh's end-of-year weekend symposiums at the Elongeni Hotel were always well attended. Quote, He was part of the environment, says Klaassen. I remember him, for example, acting as chaperone for the wives when we went off to the Curry Cup final in Cape Town in 1984. By the time that Kurs Björkus retired, Ian had already been in the system for a good few years. He was ready to take over. Although Natal had been mauled by Northern Transvaal in the round-robin fixtures of the 1990 Curry Cup, Klaassen remembers Ian Mack hatching a plan ahead of the final. Klaassen drove up to the final from Durban with his son, Anthony, then six years old, and checked into the same Holiday Inns hotel 
Natal was staying in close to Loftus. As luck would have it, Klaassen met André Boerter in the lift. Boerter hadn't been a regular for Natal through the season, but here he was. What was going on? Klaassen had heard Boerter would play at lock with Flace Fasaki in the final, with Fasaki's usual partner, Steve Atherton, moving on to the flank. He put this to Boerter in the lift. Boerter simply smiled. It was all Klaassen needed to know. Shortly before the match, Jan Lok, who had played in the curtain raiser and was in fact erroneously named in the Northern Transvaal starting 15 for the final, had a fatal heart attack in the Loftus showers. When I asked Berger if there was ever any discussion of postponing the match because of Locke's death, he told me that as far as he was aware, the discussion never happened. That wasn't all. As the teams were running down the tunnel, Peter Nell ruptured his Achilles tendon and was replaced by Hendrik Kruger. If this caused the home side a slight wobble, they didn't let it show. They were at home. In front of the faithful, who were packed to the rafters in short sleeves and t-shirts as they sat in front of hoardings advertising Nashua and PPC Cement and the Perm Building Society. The only black people in sight were the vendors. Looking back on the highlights, there doesn't seem to be a Natal fan in sight, although commentators Hugh Bladen and Gavin Cowley assure us that there are, except that is for Klaassen and his six-year-old son in their replica Natal jerseys. As a former Blue Bull, Klaassen is an honorary life member at Loftus and is entitled to tickets to each and every home game. That sunny Saturday afternoon at Loftus, he found himself badly outnumbered, surrounded by Northern Transvaal supporters. He had to be careful not to cheer too loudly. Quote, there I was, supporting Natal with all my former Northern Transvaal teammates, he says. It was pinch-yourself stuff for Klaassen and his son because Natal went into a 9-3 lead at half-time, the young pivot Joel Stransky kicking three penalties to one successful long-range effort by Gerbrand Frobler, the Northern's full-back. Directly after the break, Frobler scored the final's first try. Stransky's kickoff to start the second half was gathered by the Northern's forwards without too much difficulty and funneled down the line, Kruger putting Frobler away in the far corner as he pumped the air with his free hand before dotting down beneath the posts. Werther was successful with a straightforward conversion, and after being six points off the pace going into the break, the hosts and favourites were now all square at nine all. The momentum shifted. Ian Mack must have been a worried man, fearing a big Northern second half. Northerns were clearly on a blue roll because the next points of the half were also theirs. Minutes later, Buerta, the player referee Berger had watched successfully pot a 70-metre drop goal against Rhodesia way back in 1979 when he was learning his trade, was his usual composed self in giving Northerns the lead with another. At that stage, Northerns were ahead 12-9, having scored nine unanswered points in the half. It had yet to become ominous. Then again, Natal couldn't allow Northerns to score again because if they did, the final would be slipping out of their grasp. With the exception of time spent away from running because of his Kutsia-induced knee injury, Berger was always an exceptionally fit referee. 
He was a regular Comrades Marathon athlete through the 1980s. Although it was hot that Saturday afternoon at the Loftus Temple, Bodeguer eased through the second half. He was to play a big part in the latter stages of the match, in a manner that could hardly have been foreseen. With the clock running down and Northerns retaining their three-point lead, thanks to Buerta's drop goal, there then came the defining moment of the match. Halfway through the half, halfway in the Northerns' half, halfway in from touch on the eastern side of the field, Jamison, the Natal skipper, fed the scrum. Out the ball came, with Natal going right. Stransky broke blind but was pulled down by a second and third wave of Northern's defenders. The ball was quickly recycled on the Natal side, from Jamison to Dick Muir to Jeremy Thompson and finally Tony Watson on the wing, who shuttled down the touchline with the Northern's corner flag in sight. As Watson was approached by Theo van Rensburg, the Northern's wing, it looked as if a promising move would fizzle out as the inevitable happened, van Rensburg bungling Watson into touch. Only it didn't happen this way. Somehow, Houdini-like, Watson slipped out of van Rensburg's grasp as van Rensburg was in the very act of nabbing him. Was it a sleight of hand or a sleight of foot? Given the camera placement on the opposite side of the ground, it's impossible to tell. Watson scored the try and Stransky obliged with a straightforward conversion. At a crucial stage of the match, Natal were three points ahead, 15-12. Klaassen and his son had to show great self-control not to look too excited. Everyone was getting twitchy. An entire stadium seemed to accept at this point that matters would resume with Puerta kicking off. Berger begged to differ. He had noticed that Yanni Klaassen, the northern center, had elbowed Watson in the back as Watson dotted down. Directly after the try was scored, Berger awarded a penalty to Stransky on the halfway line. Natal were in no mood to argue. They accepted their windfall. The young Stransky, with a stellar calm that belied his ears, ran up and hit it magnificently. Natal had a six-point cushion. It wasn't long to go before Freak blew that famous Berger whistle. When asked about the decision to award Natal that final penalty, Berger is in no doubt that he made the correct choice. Klaassen, sitting in the stands with his six-year-old son, agrees. The men who make these decisions must have agreed too, because Berger was back at Loftus in 1991, when Northern Transvaal beat Transvaal 27-15 in the final. The year after that, and Natal were again in the final, and Berger was the referee when they beat Transvaal 14-13 at Ellis Park. Clearly, Berger was Natal's lucky referee. Not bad for a side who came up to the A section, not because they could win promotion playoffs, but because they were beneficiaries of a presidential decree. If you enjoyed this episode of The Luke Alfred Show, please like, share, follow and subscribe. I write full scripts for the show in the form of long-form essays and these are all available on my Substack. To get written episodes of The Luke Alfred Show a day early on Fridays, please check out The Luke Alfred Substack. You can hear The Luke Alfred Show on YouTube, Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I release a new episode every Saturday at 10.30 a.m. South African Standard Time.